Do you know what I use to record these podcasts? It's Anchor by Spotify. It's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Let me explain. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or a computer. It's all really, really easy. It's all really intuitive. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome to Sports and Other But Sports with Kent Sterling. Our very special guest today, the great Tim Doyle from CBS Sports, NBA TV. How you doing, Tim? Kent, thanks for having me on. You know, you're always the first face I see in the morning. Not my wife, okay, because I turn to my phone and I get to see that beautiful landscaping job you got going on. And I'm not going to lie, I stick with you for like anywhere from 10 seconds to two minutes. But you're normally the first face I see every morning. Yeah, you got you got stuff to do. You you can't hang for the full ten minutes. Hell no. <laughs> I, I give you a shot though. You may get me with like if you catch me right away. Like so, if you want some special effects or maybe you have like somebody in a headlock, I may watch it for a little bit longer. Hey, let me ask you. I mean, you're a cheerful guy. You're a social guy, and and for social people, these are really challenging times. You know, we we don't mind being in a a tavern either in Indianapolis or in Chicago once in a while and, and kind of yakking it up with people. How do you deal with that? Not very well, to be frankly honest with you. And I found myself early on FaceTiming with a lot of people. Yeah. And I know the older generation, they're like uncomfortable at FaceTime. And don't get me wrong, you got to have the angle right or else that like that goblet, the double, the double chin there, the giblet, uh, does not look good on most people. But I found myself FaceTiming with people just so I could connect, whether I could have a beer. And I know Zoom meetings became really big. But as time wore on, I found myself doing it less and less because I had nothing new to say. Like, I gave you all my good material. Then, like, by the third or fourth time I was FaceTiming you, I had nothing else to say. So uh, I know the Kentucky Derby is now going to run with fans. And now there's new hotspots popping up. And now New York has flattened the curve. And now they're not allowing people in. So I don't know what to believe anymore. And as a, someone who's lucky enough to have their parents alive who are in their 80s, and then with a child with special needs, I've taken this very serious from the word go. And it's just so hard to figure out what the truth is and what is kind of for ratings or sensation or political. That's been the hardest thing for me and my family. That's the same with me. Watching the news, what I've learned, and maybe it's a good thing in the end, is that we just can't trust the news media, because it is about being sensationalistic and it is about scaring the hell out of us and we can't trust what we hear. And I don't like it. Yeah. I, I just, my wife's a cancer nurse and I think she almost feels because our, our child has special needs. She feels like she needs to be I- I making the right decisions. There's a pressure on her, just like a pressure on any family, but the fact that she's a nurse, she doesn't want anything to happen to our kids. So uh, to answer your question, yeah, this has been really tough. And I do like to see people interact with people. And now that it is slowly, especially in Illinois, very slowly opening up, uh, my mental health is definitely getting a little bit better. Before we talk about college hoops and, and that kind of stuff, it, you and, and your kids, Chicago Rose, or Chicago Joe and Rose, are my favorite part of Twitter and, and social media um, we know that Chicago Joe had some tests yesterday, and we get to watch you interact with your kids. How, how big a deal, I don't know, and number one, 
why why is that important for you to do? And and I absolutely love it. But sharing your fatherhood with Chicago Joe and Rose, why is that important to you? You know, you and I kind of had a talk uh, about a year or so ago, and I was very private when he got diagnosed and he has Marfan syndrome because I didn't want people to feel bad for me. And Dan McNeil is a host on the score in Chicago, and he has a son that's special needs, and he was always poking me about, you need to come public with this. You can help other fathers, and I'm an Irish guy, and I don't express myself extremely well as far as my feelings and my emotions. His point was, you could help other fathers that are going through this same struggle. I mean, I would cry myself to sleep because I felt so bad for my son that he's never going to be able to drive in against the Hoosiers and have that basket like I was able to have. Have 20,000 people shooting their, screaming your name or having headlines in the newspaper. And I felt so bad he's never going to have kind of the same life experiences that I was going to have. But it shows you how kind of dumb and such a Neanderthal I was that this boy who's five years old has taught me more about life and about perseverance and going through stuff and kind of overcoming obstacles than really any other coach that I've ever had. So I've had this amazing experience with him and it's really put life in perspective for me that it's not about freaking Gucci bags or driving the nicest Audi. It's really about the little things in life. And I think this pandemic has really forced people to stay inside interact with their family members, and it hasn't all been pretty. I mean, I've started drinking earlier than normal, whether 3, 4 o'clock, I have a tough time waiting at 5 o'clock. But it really puts life in perspective about those people in your house and those walls. Those are the people that are going to be most important to you throughout your life. And he's got such a beautiful smile, right? And it's so much fun to see him sort of glow. And, and I know he's been attacking the hill, and that's really, really cool. And to see him kind of do that I I mean I it's great to watch you with him and it's great to watch him but it's great to take those lessons that you've learned from Chicago Joe you've shared them with us and we get to learn from them and and I'm a fan and I I absolutely appreciate it you know I really appreciate you saying that I know that's not for show I can tell that's coming from your heart and I don't shoot those videos thinking like all right here's what I'm going to do I'm going to post this and I'm going to put like this metaphor on life what normally happens is I'm trying to po- shoot that video for him to kind of go back and watch it. And then later in the night, I'm kind of sitting in my bed looking at it. And I'm like, you know, holy cow. Can I curse on this, Kent? Yeah. I- I'm like, holy shit. This is like an amazing metaphor for like, you know, what we're all going through right now, whether it's during the pandemic. And it's important to get back up. We're all going to have hills. So like I end up posting that video maybe 12 hours, maybe a day or two later when I go back and watch the video and then it starts sinking in. I'm like, hey, we're all going through some really tough times right now. No matter if you're white, if you're African-American, if you've lost your job, if you have your job, if you're at home, uh, I've had a ton of uncomfortable conversations with ex-teammates and I always felt like I was pretty in the know because I was a basketball player. And you know, a lot of times where I went, I was the only white guy, especially growing up in New York City, playing in Harlem, playing in Brooklyn. And I've never seen color, but I've never really dove into like being in those guys' shoes, in African-American shoes. I, I never had worries, concerns. So I'm at home. There's no sports. I'm going through like life, like in-depth conversations with myself and others that I've never had before. I think we're going to look back on this period of time, Ken, to be like, you know, you, you, you came to a crossroads in your life during this pandemic. And which way did you end up going? 
You know what? It, it's it, as I watch Chicago Joe. I think, you know, and it, it, different things happen to different people. We all have different miseries we have to deal with. And, and sometimes for some, it's hard to get out of bed. And I watch Chicago Joe, I think, Shit, what are my problems worth? Jesus Christ, I, I'm getting out of bed and I'm attacking stuff. Here's Chicago Joe, he's attacking the hill. I'm going to go attack stuff because that's what life's about. And, and you sharing that, I, I, I really, I, I thank you for all the people who, who grab strength from you and Joe and Rose is funny and, and, and the whole crew is just hilarious and, and validating of life to me. So thank you. I appreciate thank you. I appreciate you, you sharing that. And I grew up a very unusual life. My dad was first generation Irish, grew up in a bar. He loved to gamble. He wasn't very politically correct. Uh, so I've kind of stolen a lot from him. And the way that I grew up was very unusual. My wife's always like, what's wrong with you? But uh, now that I'm getting older and I have kids in a family, uh, I'm actually just trying to help dads out there that are trying to go through kind of the same experience as well as trying to keep it together with their own relationship and their kids, that it's okay to get stuff off your chest and, and kind of speak up in whatever ways. For me, it's been Twitter to kind of get that out, out to the forefront. You know, before I was 30, I think, and I'm sorry for not getting to sports, but I, I'd rather talk to you about this for the time being. Um, I had... I can count on one hand, probably less than that, the number of serious conversations I had with people, socially really good friends. All I wanted to do was go out, drink beer, and laugh my ass off with them. And, and this period of time has brought us to a place, like you alluded to, of such kind of reflection. And that's not where I come from. My dad was not reflective whatsoever in any sense. I don't think I had a... a, a an intense conversation with my dad other than out of anger once is that is that where you are with this i mean having those conversations really like serious legitimate conversation has that been difficult for you yes and i don't find myself to be insecure or jealous and i have felt like uneasy at times now i've dealt with playing basketball where I was the minority for a majority of my life. And, and I find these conversations to be difficult to have with my ex-teammates, guys I grew up with. So my point is to those out there, whether it's a coworker or a neighbor or my mailman, like it's okay to have that. Like it's okay to have that uneasy feeling. That's why, unfortunately, this isn't going to get solved tomorrow or next week or next month, but we just need to progress in the right direction for the future to come. And yeah, I think having those intelligent conversations, as well as trying to be able to see both sides. And I think that's the hardest part in the world that we're living in right now, really seeing both sides. You can have your own side, but you got to be able to see both sides. And, you know, I, the, the disappointing thing, Kent, about the news right now is the sensationalism of it in order to draw viewers. So you're like, you're so drawn in that you can't turn away. I just want truth in all this. Like, just tell me what's going on. I'll listen to whatever needs to be done. But finding the truth has been really difficult. But as long as you can open your eye, maybe just a little bit more than what it was before the pandemic, I think that's a good thing. And speaking of your father, I've never told my dad I loved him. I, I, I try to do it now. I'm still trying to, like, get that across. It's hard for me to do, and he's in his 80s. But I was sitting down with him recently, and I got a chance to ask him. Now, he played in the NBA. He played for Al McGuire in college at Belmont Abbey. And I always try to pick the right time. And we weren't drinking. And I turned to him. I said, you know, Dad, is there any regrets 
you ever had in life? And he goes, I have one regret. So I kind of sit up in my seat. I'm like, oh, this is going to be unbelievable. Like, I'm going to get a life lesson that I could pass on. And we're, he was eating a bagel, and my mother had made soft-boiled eggs. And he turned to me, he goes, I wish I never borrowed money from loan sharks to pay to bookmakers. And I went, that's your only regret? I go, your whole life, it wasn't like buying Home Depot or buying like real estate in New York or buying a house, borrowing lo- money from loan sharks to pay to bookmakers. That was his only regret, Ken. So I guess he's had a pretty good life. You know, my dad, shortly before he passed away, he asked my mom, this is completely different, but he, he asked my mom, did we do okay? as parents. I had never conveyed to him that he had done okay. My sister had never done that. All I ever wanted to do was make him laugh, right? That was the affirmation that I got. It wasn't, hey, I love you or any of that. Any hug was just a joke. But he asked, I had never made that guy feel good enough about being a dad that he knew that he was a good dad. That kills me. Yeah, I, and, I, and I try to express this right now. And I told you right now, I've I, I just started, and I'm 37, he's 80. So, and, and you expressing that, and anyone who's listening or watching this out there, if we're able to just push you forward where you're able to say that to a loved one, whether it's an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent, a mother, or a father, for us, it's our dads because we had such close connections with them. I think it means something. And it is hard to say, like, you get to the finish line and it's like, it's like asking that, you know, for me, that girl out that I always, uh, can I, can I, like, you just can't get there. But I think it's important. I'm trying to do it. And even for me, and I'm pretty outgoing, it's difficult to do. All right. Let's, let's talk a little bit about college basketball. How do you think this steers college basketball these times, both in terms of, of race and in terms of coronavirus? Where's college basketball head in, in the fall? Man, I, I really wish I had the answer to that. You know, yeah. I, 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 how important is college basketball and college football to these schools, uh, these towns? Look at the town of Tuscaloosa and what that does for the state of Alabama when they play football and in Indiana and what that does as far as just rallying the state and, and people that go to those games. Um, if I had to bet, I do believe that they're going to play college basketball. Is there going to be fans there? That I don't know. So I, I do think that, you know, the world is slowly opening up and I have this kind of vision of the NBA is going to play in this bubble for the first X amount of regular season games. And as the playoffs go on, if the United States starts to open, they may end up playing the playoffs or the finals in their own arenas. And maybe it's not a maximum capacity, but I think this is this whole thing is evolving. It almost seems like day by day, hour by hour. But I think the biggest thing that we can do is accept when someone has been diagnosed with COVID-19 that they're not going to be able to play or participate, whether it's the starting quarterback or the starting point guard or Novak Djokovic or Brooks Kepka. Like, unfortunately, for the time being, for the next however long, if somebody gets this, they're going to have to sit out. And that's the one thing I think we are getting better with, whether it's all those players down in Texas that got diagnosed with it, that we're going to have to accept this as a fan and as a society, that that's just the reality of the world we're living in. And it's going to keep moving forward, right? There's not going to be like when, uh, uh, when Rudy Gobert tested positive and, and I'm at the Big Ten tournament and Bob Kravitz shows me the, th- the tweet I'm like, okay, they're shutting everything down. And we watch Red Panda, and we think this is the last time we're going to be together 
watching a halftime watching sports during that Indiana and Nebraska game um, and, and everything stopped, it feels like now it's not going to stop. We're just going to adapt and keep moving through. That's what it does feel like. And I tweeted out, you know, I was in Dallas when Mark Cuban got that text. I was working for NBA TV. And I remember I had gone out that night. I maybe had three martinis. You should really only have two. You should probably only have one. But two is not enough. Three is too many. So I woke up, and I, it was like four in the morning. And I remember I had this anxiety about me. And I, the thought that I had was if one more jazz player tests positive, this is all – everything's going to shut down. So I end up tweeting that. And Jordan Cornette, who's now at the ACC Network, played at Notre Dame. Him and I have been friends for a long time. He calls me. He goes, you can't tweet that. Take that down. What are you, trying to scare people? So I ended up taking the tweet down. And and now we joke about it. I go, did I have the vision that this this was all going to shut down? And I think Rudy Gobert, because he touched all the microphones and the phones and stuff. And we we all had friends that were like that. Everyone thinks he gave Donovan Mitchell coronavirus. No one knows that. Donovan Mitchell could have gave it to him the way this is all being passed around and Donovan Mitchell's from New York and who knows if a family member came out. You never know. But like Rudy Gobert ends up being the, the idiot or the asshole because he's the guy who touched all the phones and stuff. So uh, I really feel like I felt bad for him. Obviously, you know, he, he, he apologized and he was wrong for doing that. But there's no necessary, there's no information that said that Rudy gave it to Donovan Mitchell. Donovan Mitchell could have easily given it to Rudy. And now we found out on the back end of that, it's really hard to spread coronavirus in that way, right? It's like almost all aerosol and in touching a thing, then somebody touches a thing. It's very difficult to convey in that way. And I guess Donovan McNichol or uh, Donovan Mitchell was pissed off at Rudy Gobert and that took some time to heal. Yeah. I, hopefully like I, I think everyone was upset uh, at Rudy Gobert at first just for being irresponsible. But Donovan Mitchell has to look at himself and kind of yeah. go through. And what's interesting, Kent, is they're going to play in this bubble, the NBA is. And if you watch The Last Dance, which was great, and it was probably even better because there was nothing else on, I always get reminded of the pizza game, right? When Jordan got the flu game and it was because he ate the bad pizza. How about if you know someone that has coronavirus and you can just send that person – to one of the players' rooms. And, like, this thing is going to be – I want to see the hotels. Forget about the games. I want to see what's going on when these guys are not on the floor because to try to say that you're going to live in this bubble in a state now of Florida that has this massive hot spot of a huge spike, I love the fact that Adam Silver is like, hey, we're going to push forward, we're going to play. I love it. I need something to watch. I need something to gamble on. I'm praying to you to still play these games. But keeping these guys safe off the floor – I think it's a great idea as far as executing it. I think it's going to be impossible. What kind of a, what kind of a life would you have led? What kind of choices would you have made the 22 year old version of Tim Doyle? If they tried to keep you in a bubble. Yeah. With, with, with 2 million in my bank account, Kent, I had like $200 in my bank account. I was living like a millionaire. Could you imagine you had 20 million? I mean, you, you can't even think clearly. And for me, you know, I, I had so much success. I was on Big Ten Network at 24. And I look back at myself and things I said on air, and I was like, I was an idiot. And I said, the, 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 you know, and I was trying to be maybe someone I wasn't. And, and now that I'm older, I'm lucky that I'm still in this opportunity to still call games and have a presence. But everybody that young thinks they have the answers. Until you go through some life experiences, you, you really start to realize you don't. 
Uh, I love the fact that the NBA is playing. I think it's going to be unbelievable for gambling. The guys are going to be sitting at home, whether it's $5 a game or $500 a game. Uh, you're going to have to get your fix somehow. So Adam Silver, he's always been at the forefront as far as pushing for gambling. And now he's pushing for these games. And you got to give Dana White and the UFC credit. They moved forward with their activities when everyone thought it was crazy. So this whole thing has been very fluid and evolving. It just seems like day-to-day, Ken, things change. Hey, why didn't you go into coaching? Great question. Um, I, w- I would love to coach. Uh, recruiting is tough. And I know that's like you know, Archie Miller could be the greatest coach in the whole world. If you don't got the horses – you know, you, you can't win, you know, and, and that's, that's just a fact of it. Phil Jackson's a great coach. Go look at his rosters. They're pretty damn good. He's right. some of the greatest players in the history of basketball. So, uh, you know, and I always look at Bill Carmody, who was my coach at Northwestern, and I have an affinity for him because he did so much with so little. Right. And that, that, that's who I can really define as a great coach. But as far as coaching, especially at the college level, it's all about recruiting. And Bill Carmody was not a very good recruiter. So I'll say that publicly. Where if you're at Indiana, which is such a basketball-rich state, and they care about basketball, you got to get the best players, and recruiting becomes everything. And that's where you lost me there. I I have a tough time chasing after 14- and 15-year-olds. You know, and even if you're a really, really good coach, and even if you can recruit, you're still going to get fired. And if you're an assistant coach just starting out, and your head coach does something squirrely, your, your career takes a left turn. There are so many things you can't control within that business as an assistant coach as you're starting out that it, it just seems crazy to believe that you're going to be able to avoid all those minds and wind up being what you ought to be. Do you think it's fair? Because I go on the road and I call about 30, 40 games a year. I tell assistant coaches they're all insane. And I say it like this. You're just like me. You're just like Ken Sterling. They're chasing their dream, and there is a passion to all that. But I would say, and you could disagree with me, I think broadcasting and coaching? Oh, yeah. Oh, they're, they're parallel as far as how hard it is to really make it. Completely insane. And right now it's getting worse and worse and worse, especially in media. Yet You're a little bit insulated from that because I think CBS – has so much invested in play-by-play and you're so good at it that it's going to work for you as a generator of income. But if you work for a local radio station, there is nothing that you can control. Like the, the, the corporate guys, they're, they're moving radio stations like they're poker chips. And each one of those poker chips represent probably 20, 25 employees that are, you know, just being cast to the wind. It is a complete nightmare right now in broadcasting. And that's why I never get invited back after somebody brings me in to talk to a group of prospective broadcasters at universities because I paint the most bleak, dour picture possible to try to discourage these guys and girls because if I can, then they're not going to last and they don't belong in it. Yeah, and I do the same thing. And I have helped – I know what it is. It's 58 people get jobs in the last five years. Now, I'm not saying they're making $200,000 a year, but they have a job in television that I've helped them either as a PA or a camera guy. And I have the same talk with them, especially guys that are out of school and they love sports. And I go, that's great. I would love to help you because someone has helped me along the lines. And I just tell them, like, do you want to live in Chicago with all your buddies and, like, go out on Friday and Saturday and, like, live it up? 
They go, yeah. I go, well, that's not going to happen. No. Do you want to have like a wife and kids and have barbecues on the weekend and have the uh, people over? Cool. That's not going to happen either because you're going to have to go in and report that there's a squirrel court in a tree on the south side. And that's a story because you want to be on TV. Like the hours and the dedication and the nights that you have to work. And, and, and now, unfortunately, the payoff, right? I mean, Kent, you remember when guys were making real money back in the day and now not so much anymore because it's such a watered down industry that if you're able to kind of break through and get that break, uh, they don't have to pay you anymore or pay you like they used to. So yes, there's the Tony Romans of the world that are getting $18 million a year, but there are more guys kind of living paycheck to paycheck. And my best advice, if you want to go into television or radio is have a fallback plan or have a second career. And once you're able to have that, because TV, like coaching, there's going to be a lot of forks in the road and you're going to have to change landscapes or change jobs or move. So if you have a fallback plan, that's going to give you a great safety net. You know, there's somebody in Northwestern grad who's up in Chicago doing some different things with podcasting. And I think she's really clever. She worked down here for a couple of years as Megan McEwen. Her, her dad's the uh, yep. head women's basketball coach. She's really, really smart. And if anybody can figure it out, I think Megan's going to figure it out. But uh, other than figuring out in, in God knows, like people call me all the time or they hit me on social media and they say, okay, podcasting, how do I make money? Well, you don't. I mean, that, that business model just flat out really doesn't exist unless you're Joe Rogan. You know, you mentioned Romo. Like there are guys at the top of the pyramid where it all makes sense, but there are a million people who do a really good job and, and just continue to plod through as, I don't know, hobbyists, maybe. It is really hard. This business is impossible. Yeah, it's really tough. And I had a conversation with an executive about Tony Romo and his contract. And he told me that when Tony Romo does a Corona commercial, people go out and buy Corona. Yeah. You know, and I think he does Keds or some other shoe commercial. When he does that, people go out and buy those shoes. Like he moves the meter. And the guy looked at me and he goes, I'm sorry, Tim. You don't move the meter. <laughs> there was nothing I could say. Which, you're right. I don't move the meter. But, you know, you could argue that, you know, he also has that platform. And if you believe in yourself, you're like, if I had that platform, I think that I could do that as well. But, you, you know, I doubt I'll ever be on that level. Maybe in 50 years I'm going to be on that level. Um, but, yeah, that was interesting. The executive said that to me. And I was out with Bill Rafferty one night. And I love Bill. And Bill knows my dad from way back when growing up in the 50s and 60s out on the East Coast. And we were drinking, and he's awesome to drink with. He's exactly what you imagine Bill Rafferty drinking with. That's exactly what he's like. And he turned to me, and he said, hey, Doyle, he goes, you're just waiting for me to die, aren't you? <laughs> I didn't know what to say to him, Kent. I was like, nah, coach. I go, that's not true. But there was like a little man inside of me that was like, yeah, he does have a point. <laughs> How about some of these guys retire, for God's sake? How much money does Vital make? How much money does Raftery make? Just pull the plug and go live in Florida like a human being. I, I, I get it, and I definitely had that point of view. But for those guys, they have to do yeah. something. You know, like, I don't care if you, if you right now hit the lottery for $45 million or $450 million. You're going to have to do something, whether it's coach peewee football or be involved in your community. I do a hoops for homework program down at the Mercy Home Orphanage in the West Loop. I would probably still do that just because – 
I love my wife, but I got to get away from her. I love my kids. I got to get away. Like you've got to have your own identity. So as I've gotten older, I get it. And, and don't get me wrong. Those guys are, are on a, I'm trying to catch those guys as far as broadcasting, but you know, people now you live longer, you live healthier. Uh, so I, I get why they're doing it, but yeah, for guys like me, I just got to kind of wait my turn. You're the greatest. Thank you, Tim. I really appreciate you taking the time. Ken, it was awesome. Best of Chicago, Joe, and, uh, and Rose, of course. Uh, sports, nothing but sports brought to you by the great people of today's dentistry. Uh, Breakfast with Kent, Monday, as always. Uh, look forward to talking to you then.